I like the movie Arrival a lot. Mostly because the idea of having access to my future self's memories is extremely comforting. Not for the good stuff, though. I actually think that's trouble. Because I'd hate to find myself jerking off to a memory I had generated in the future when I was having sex. Which brings up all sorts of ethical issues like, who is this woman? And is Carol going to be mad? Answer? Yes, and forever. I liked it because of the bad stuff. Because it would be really useful if you found yourself in a pickle. By the way, another thing that happens when you age apparently is you take on cheese dick sayings to communicate fairly simple ideas, like, find yourself in a pickle. In fact, the aliens in Arrival were pretty old. I kind of wish Costello had said, Abbott is pickle process. Because death is a pretty big pickle. You know, a big dark pickle that hovers over us all, dripping its briny nothingness into our souls. Into, uh, I forgot what I was saying, and I was just blathering until I remembered. I just remembered. I like Arrival because if you did find yourself in a pickle, at least you'd know if you were getting out of it one day. Or not. Like if you wound up in prison. But we have so little time on this planet, the idea you might spend a huge portion of it contained is terrifying. And there are so many petty ways to wind up in prison. Ways that don't merit a human being spending time there. I mean, think about how out of time you feel right now. You're out in the world and you're free. Then think what it would be like to have nothing to do but think about that. To feel the hours slide by as your only life ebbs quietly in a cell. Circular time would be the best thing a prisoner could have. Because if you can't be free, you could at least live part-time in your future awareness after you were to have been freed. But that's not an option. So what do stupid human suits do to keep going and not freak out constantly about how little time we all have in prison? We'll find out in a little bit. Because however old you are, however healthy, we are all death process. Thanks a lot, Costello. This is Stupid Human Suits. Human suit. Yay! Yay. <laughs> I don't know why I do it that way. Because it, it, it lends an air of joy to something that sometimes doesn't have one. This is true. Um, I am very excited because our guest this week is one of my favorite comedians. Mm-hmm. And I my... have no joy. <laughs> none. Sean, He's I miserable. None. Horrible sinkhole of, of <laughs> evil. Well, you know what? I should restate that one what? of our favorite yeah, comedians you. and one of our favorite people, uh, oh. the lovely Jeffrey Joseph. Yay. Thank you for being here. I wish you folks at home could see how lovely I am. I know. Yes. This is the We'll, the we'll post of, a photo of you. Yeah. On the... <laughs> yeah. Uh, please refer to the photo as you're listening to this. And uh, you can follow Jeffrey on Twitter at, at, at Jeffrey Joseph. Yeah, A-T Jeffrey Joseph. Yeah. Uh, so make sure you get that right. Jeffrey with a J. Oh, yes. J-E-F-F-R-E-Y. G off. None of that G off bullshit. Yeah, that's ridiculous. No American was going to do that. I don't. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm assuming it's G-E-O-F-F-E-Y, an extra E after that. You've got one listener on Chestnut in Chestnut Hill, Massachusetts. I can't find Jeffrey. (laughs) I will do a Bing search to find out. Of course you use Bing. Um, so here's where I want to start with this because okay. um, we like to uh, keep it pretty grim here. Yep. <laughs> um, wh- so a, a thing we like to do with all of our our, our first time guests mm-hmm. is ask them about my first time, and this is 
Um, we want to know, do you have a specific memory of finding out that death was a thing, that it would happen to you and to everyone you knew? Like, yeah, some people are like it was a pet. Some people is like a grandmother or a parent. I mean, it can be minor or huge. Yeah. Or trivial. I, I was a little kid in, in Roxbury, Massachusetts, playing with uh, other little kids. And this one, back when little kids could walk around unencumbered by adults, like they, your mother would just open the door and be like, get out. Go. You have to get out of this house. Yeah. And you go out and you see the other kids who were out. And, and my two best friends at that time, I think, were Dinky and Chubby. That, <laughs> those, that were their names. And they lived downstairs from me in the apartment. And we were wandering around and we saw a dead dog I think it was and it was just stiff in this in like the street and its hair was like matted and like we poked it with a stick a couple of times and it was dead and you know it's it's um its mouth looked all like it was like frozen and you know its tongue was out and it was just dead maybe a couple of flies for dramatic effect and I was like okay that thing is dead and you sort of you glommed on to the idea that this is this body that you're in that that can happen to no when i was a little kid i didn't, <laughs> say, I didn't say well this means one day i too shall die dinky chubby our mortality we must enjoy every minute of our five-year-old lives quick get, get, get some did thoreau say something about that jeffrey why yes you did uh, all right that, fair enough fair enough but that's like a that is a that is a a, a brush with with the end was there a, a later realization about your own mortality about my own mortality well i think i have six pretty successfully dodged questions about my own death uh most of my life i think we're really good at that yeah um yeah we are i used to have a dream though and it was when i was in my 20s and uh, it was this dream that uh i remember i was living in la and i would dream that there were these men in black robes uh, surrounding my bed and they were having a discussion and the discussion was shall we take him with us uh, no not now and in the dream I was completely immobilized in, in bed while they discussed whether I should be going with them and the place I assumed they were talking about was like the place of no return or death and so it was a really chilling, kind of frightening dream, and I had it over and over again. That is that is spooky. That's mm -hmm. that's upsetting. Mm -hmm. About how old did you say? 20s. In my twenties. In your twenties. Yeah, yeah. I had this uh, recurring dream that I couldn't quite put my finger on why it was so scary as a kid, um, but it it would vary each time just a little bit. But the the, the essentially I would just be in a room and there would be an object in there, and I remember once it was like a big. Uh, airplane engine or something and another time it was little bouncy balls and then more would appear around me until I was kind of suffocating with all these things mm -hmm. and then I would wake up and I had been wandering around in the hall for a while and in, it, in real life in real life around. yeah uh -huh. and so this just happened over and over again and it was just this feeling of being trapped and suffocating and this is the end of you you can't move anymore and that's why you're a buddhist now because <laughs> you don't want to be encumbered by material things wow you're not a buddhist no and, uh, and not for nothing around the time i had that dream I, I used to have that dream often i remember one morning i woke up and the first thought i had is i wonder when my grandmother's gonna die mm. and then literally like 10 minutes later the phone rang and my grandmother had died what so in a way i think it put me in touch with some kind of sense of mortality yeah prepping you a little bit yeah yeah there's something about that dream that did you ever see um uh was it communion 
that alien abduction movie? No. There's a, <clears throat> there's just, it, that's the first thing I thought of because it, it's not like they're, you know, uh, black hooded uh, uh, aliens. It's just, they're the classic, I think, uh, gray men or whatever aliens. But I think there's a shot like, they show you these flashbacks uh, that may or may not have happened uh, of of one of the uh, the people who was abducted and they're you know they're on the classic gray slab and about to be experimented on. But uh, uh, there's a shot I think where the from the perspective of the person who was abducted and you just see like two or three aliens around the slab just looking down. And there's something. The minute you started saying that, I was mm. thinking about a fear I had when I was uh, young that lasted like pretty late into life uh, about alien abductions. Like it was terrified me because it's the same sense of like you you can do absolutely nothing to stop this because they are such a, a categorically higher power. Mm. Anything you think of doing, they'll be able to preempt and will have already preempted. Mm. And all you can do is run. You think an interstellar race of space travelers isn't going to be able to like stop – the fat kid from running <laughs> through the yard. Right, right. Oh, we, he got another human got away. <laughs> right, right, We're really right. bad at this. We should, we right. great at interstellar travel, bad at stopping fat kids mm. from running, <laughs> running through a six foot cubic yard. Mm. Uh, good times. Um, so <laughs> on to a lighter topic. Oh, yeah. Uh, you, uh, in addition to being a hilarious comedian and writer, uh, you taught in a prison for a while yeah man i think I'm, I'm about to do a little return visit actually um same one uh yeah uh biggest one right yeah That's, man wow. yeah. how did you get into that hmm. into jail no <laughs> <laughs> no just how did, how did you get how that, you get that yeah. you seem like a perfectly outstanding <laughs> young fellow tell our tell our listeners how they can get into jail too <laughs> do you remember the first time you heard of a black man going to jail and he's like well this one day is gonna happen to me <laughs> oh dear to dream <laughs> ah. uh, it was uh, uh, I, I was uh, a teaching artist uh, for a, a bunch of at risk youth um in a, in a program and then uh, the opportunity came for the, that program to start going to Rikers Island mm -hmm. and uh, teach workshops and I was like yeah I'd love to do that so and I just kind of fell into it, it what was no master plan what's the uh, I mean what was the for, uh, two things one what was the original um, drive to uh, that sent you into teaching uh, at risk youth like what was I, I literally fell into it I mean I, I I moved to New York from LA and uh, I just wasn't doing that much in the daytime. And I was, you know, uh, you know, maybe I would audition when there <laughs> were auditions. And then at night, I remember I would go out every night and um, just drink and get fucked up. I remember the great thing I thought when I first moved to New York is like, literally I can decide to go out at one o'clock in the morning <laughs> and when I go out there's all these other people who decided to go out at one o'clock in the morning <laughs> and I could be out with them until four or five in the morning and then it was great and then at a certain point I think I got sick of that and uh, this opportunity came up and I I did it and I was like oh this kind of feels really good hmm. feels really good so how long did you do that before you wound up going to Rikers mm. uh, that's 
a good question. I don't know what the real answer to like that. Like a, a couple I, of years, I, do you I, think? I could I could Donald Trump it. <laughs> <laughs> the first day they said you would be perfect in the best and worst environment. I was there for a hundred years, <laughs> hundred and fifty years. I was there longer than anyone has ever been anywhere. Uh, so like when you when you got in there, like so how how does it work when they do you have to do any pre training or anything before they Oh now you do. <laughs> now you do. Oh, no. oh God! In the beginning, they just let you in, and um, they would. It, would, it actually it's really hard to get into jail if you didn't do anything wrong. There's all, all these security things uh, you have to go through. But now there's actually a training. Hmm. It's called Priya, and it's it, the, basically the, the training is don't rape the prisoners. And oh it's, great! It's a six-hour training, <laughs> and then six hours in very on all the different ways they say don't rape the prisoners. Jesus and, uh, Christ! By by rape, it's a pretty broad definition because uh, there's no such thing as uh, consensual sex in 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 prison. Mm-hmm. So any sexual contact would would be deemed rape. So um, and in my in our particular case, we work with kids, so that would be you know the double rape. I mean, right. you know, yeah. But, but uh, yeah, I mean, I was never thinking of raping the prisoners. <laughs> But they they make you go through extensive training. So wow. there's no here's how to build a lesson plan. It's just don't rape the prisoners. Yes, yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> don't don't rape the prisoners. And then also they they teach you some basic safety things, mm-hmm. uh, which which are like it's not really gonna help you. <laughs> in case in case there's like a riot sort of thing, or You're, just well, in case I mean you're in prison. Yeah. So you know they're trying to teach you some basic things about being. Mm-hmm alone in a room or where you should stand in a room or just being aware of, of what's going on around you. So uh, so wow. when you uh, teach these classes in prison, uh, what's the age range of the students you're working with? Well, I work with incarcerated youth, so that it's oh. high school age kids. Okay. Um, yeah. What and do you, what do you, oh, oh, go ahead. No, you go on. No, you. No, you. <laughs> I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to wait. Make 30 minutes of quiet. I'll do it. <laughs> Oh, how nice would that be, huh? You just turned into two cats. Yeah. Just, yeah, like, man, man. <laughs> just waiting for the other to pounce. Uh, uh, I'll see you're quiet and I'll raise it. <laughs> Utter silence. Uh, no, I wanted to ask, like, what's, you know, these kids, they, I'm sure there's like a huge gamut of reasons they wind up in there. Right. Is there, can you see, like, when you're, when you're working with them, can you see different levels of like, desperation or hope or you know how, how, how do you how did you process them you know what's your what was your takeaway at first and then how did that develop well I think that for the kids that we're not supposed to know what they did yeah um, although sometimes it becomes apparent um, and I think for most of the kids who it's their first time there and they're actually processing a lot, which is um, how do I, how did I get here, mm-hmm. and how could I get out of here, and what's my life gonna be like now? So, um, I, I most writing prompts that I are gonna that I give them really, no matter what the prompt is, they're kind of gonna write a version of of their journey, and. Uh, depending on the creativity of the prompt, they might write it in a more creative way, but they're writing about their usually their immediate experience and in a deeper way trying to figure it out or come to terms with it. Yeah. And did do they want to be there? Is it is it their choice or are they sort of assigned this class? 
Um, that's an interesting question. And you find out the answer the first day. <laughs> okay, you want to be here. Mm, you don't really want to be here. Uh, and, and that's also, you know, the journey of, of, of being a, teaching a workshop is uh, you go in and there's a lot of resistance because, okay, I'm, I'm in jail and uh, I want to get out of jail and I want to have a life and maybe a legitimate life now where I'm not going to, do something that's going to put me back here. How the fuck is learning playwriting going to help any of that? <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. So there's that resistance. And it's, it's, I understand it. It's real. Like, what, what, what is this going to do for me? Um, this is not practical. You know, some kids in regular high school want arts education, but in, in jail, they don't want arts education. Yeah. They want to find a practical way, some practical things, so that when they get out of jail, they can do these things and it's going to help them along their, their, their life. Like they would have preferred like an IT class, like yeah. how to oh, the server. I don't even know if they would know what they would prefer, but yeah. they're, they're, there's in that sense of, there's a sense of desperation. So they, they, they want something that kind of makes sense to them, but they don't even know what that thing mm -hmm. is. So, so there's that's the initial resistance. Yeah. So do you find yourself um, at the beginning of the class like trying to justify why they should be interested in it, or do nope. you just kind of not fight them on nope. that? Don't, nope, nope, nope. Just yeah. invite them to do it. Mm -hmm. Invite them to do it. Uh, one thing I always uh, emphasize with with all of them, uh, as subtly as I can, which is that, um, and this is New York City high school kids in general, and then kids in in prison in particular, which is that they're already really pretty good assessors of character. Mm. Like they're really good observers of life because if you're living on the street, that's how you survive. You have to really have to check people out. Um, they're they're saying one thing and they're doing another. Sharp What's bullshit this? meters. Yes, exactly. What's their intent? Uh, what does this person's physicality tell me about him? What what's the kind of language he uses? Mm -hmm. How he walks? You know, uh, the kinds of things I heard he did. And those are also the the building blocks of creating a character. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, so you, they already have this ability. And if even in reading text, like if I'm going to probably read a few plays and then a ask them to debrief what I've what I've read, they're really good at picking things out. Really good. Uh -huh. Like I mean, this character, like is totally faking it because yeah, he wants this. Oh. Yeah. I mean, I there was this one play that was on Broadway a couple of years ago that I'd taken a bunch of kids to see, not prison kids, but other kids. And, uh, <laughs> Holy shit! Uh, <laughs> does yeah. does yeah, the yeah. law know about yeah. this? Yeah. But uh, and the, the it's called the American, the American plan, I think. Uh, and then uh, the big reveal in the second act is that you find out that this lead character is gay, and the, and the audience literally gasps because they've, you know, they're like, oh God, you know, now we get it. So I remember in one situation, I read the first three pages of this play to these kids, and they were like, that guy's gay. What? <laughs> <laughs> and at first I thought, okay, is that just the you know the juvenile response? Well, yeah. he's gay. Yeah. And I was yeah. like, well, he's in a play. He's well, gay. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're gay too. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> you read thank the play. You. Okay, <laughs> thank you. Yeah. So I said, well, what what what's the evidence? What gives you that? And they they had very specific points where they said she said this and he said that, and then he said this and then he did that, and I was like, that's wow. absolutely right. Holy shit. <laughs> That's absolutely right. <laughs> is there, uh, like with the kids, is it, you know, like you're in high school, middle school, there's, these fucking kids run the, like I, just you, wherever you were in the spectrum of behavior, mm. like I was kind of a, 
uh, a very quiet child for a while and mm-hmm. and and uh, reclusive, and then I I switched gears and became a little more rambunctious. But there are kids who are like shut-ins, basically, like you get like the. the they sit by themselves and then they're the, you know, you get like really amped up jocks. You get, uh, the sort of kids who are always like fidgety because there's some sort of ADD thing there. Like you see all the kids. Is there a predominant kind of, uh, like, uh, a style, like a, a, like a demeanor? Yeah. Are they all like, are they all the recluse or are there a lot of ADDs? Well, I would say this, I'd say generally speaking, most of the kids who are in jail, it was because they wanted social interaction in the sense that they got involved in something with a bunch of other people to or a group of other people yeah. to to make money uh, that's you know so it was actually some kind of group thing i mean uh, Interesting. yeah very few kids that i meet are there because they solo did something mm-hmm. mm. yeah they were just the one that got caught Oh uh, yeah, or a couple of them, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, have you had any students who, um, like, have since taken your class, um, gotten out of jail, and that you've stayed in touch with, and like, have they talked to you about? Well, here's one thing: you're not supposed to stay in touch. With oh, interesting. Uh, but there, there have been situations where, um, through various other organizations, uh, or now uh, through the organization I work with, where we offer further services to kids upon release. Oh, okay. So, in that sense, you might might see people again. Yeah. And where do you wind up, like, where does that, does that happen at a, just a, a random teaching facility, or does the organization have a facility associated with... Yeah, there's a, there's a summer program that we do for recently released kids where they um, write a play together as a group and then perform it. So that might be a situation oh, that's where, great. where you encounter kids again. Do you perform it, uh, is it for the they public? They perform it. They yeah, perform it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's at Manhattan Theater Club. And, um, oh, that's fantastic. I've got to remember the name of the program. But it's, it's a specific name. It happens in the summertime every summer. Mm-hmm. And it's how long has it been going on? Like a few years at yeah, least? It's probably the second. This will be probably the third or fourth year. Okay, so it's fairly new. That's mm-hmm. that's yeah. definitely something I'd like to see, actually. Yeah. Right. So what's that like for you to see these students writing and performing in a play after having oh, Gollum went through? It's great. <laughs> it's like okay, that's, that's a kind of a positive effect, and yeah. you know they get paid to do it. That they get a stipend, and oh. so it's it's kind of like a job, and mm-hmm. you know, yeah, it's a good thing. Is it? I guess like <clears throat> you're at the end of the program. Do you feel? Do you feel exhausted? Do you feel energized? Do you feel like you know you circled around back to where you started? Oh boy, man, it's uh, that's a lot right there because. It depends on basically how close you become to the kid through their work. Mm. So sometimes you start to understand things about who they are and what they've been through, which which might be particularly harrowing, and you don't like the idea of leaving that kid in mm. the jail. Yeah. Well, I guess that's that yeah. would be the yeah. next question is so like that, that that hurts. Yeah, you I was know, gonna like, I, I was gonna ask about the that <laughs> sort of emotional toll of yeah, like yeah. you you go in and work with these kids and then and you're just gonna leave and go about your life and and you know that they're incarcerated. Like, what is that feeling? Oh man, that sometimes it's horrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember there was this one kid and um, he really sweet kid. He really wanted a lot of attention. Worked with him a lot. 
I was always happy to see us. And uh, we came to find out that he was involved in a murder and that he probably would be incarcerated for quite a long time. And he didn't really have any family that was involved with him in any way, and he was just alone. And uh, not to, you know, I'm not trying yeah. to condone his crime or anything mm-hmm. like that or, or, or understand what his level of guilt or innocence was because I don't think he had been to trial yet. But uh, it was just uh, like you're leaving this, felt like you're leaving this kid in, in prison all by himself for a long time. And I remember when I went home the last day, uh, I just started crying. and I just couldn't stop crying. And I kept thinking... I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And then I was like, I'm not really, I mean, I did the best I could for this kid. So it's not, I don't think I'm sorry. And I just kept crying and I just kept thinking, and I kept thinking, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, but I'm not so sorry. And then I realized he's so sorry Hmm. that his feeling had transferred to me that he's really, really, really sorry about what he did, but he's not in any kind of safe enough space to be able to express that. Oh, God. And that I was expressing that, and that was, that wow. kind of blew me away. Yeah. Uh, oh, fuck. Yeah. I mean, that's you a- wanted a grim podcast, <laughs> <laughs> and I oh. came here to deliver. Oh, uh, I guess that seems Human Suits is sponsored by Zoloft (laughs) Zoloft and But I guess that does seem like Kind of part of the point of what you're doing Is to Give them tools to If not right away eventually discover What it is they're feeling And and some sort of I don't know even if it's some sort of Internal redemption For your own feelings of guilt Or Um but also just uh, like his humanity getting to to transfer over to you is something that maybe he doesn't get to experience that often. Um, so just that just to me seems like the point of the kind of program you're working on. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, deep deep in the back of my head, I just I want people to um, express what they think and feel and, and know that that's valid. Mm-hmm. Uh, just that. Um, the funny thing is I also recently started working with a, a, a program called Witness to Innocence, which is um, it's death row exonerees. So it's people who were on death row. Were on death like row DNA evidence. Right. They, they found out that these people were innocent. So in, in a way, I've worked with people who are just going into prison and people who have come out after a long time. Um what what and is what is the flip side of that? Like knowing well, you lost like ten, fifteen, twenty years of exactly. your life. Exactly, and they, and they really do want to express themselves in words. Um, they really want to learn how to be captains of their of their own story, mm. and and find ways to get their stories out there. So, uh, it, it's been really interesting to me to be to be part of that. And they're really, for the most part, uh, despite all the shit they've been through pretty wonderful and warm people how I hear the, I hear these stories you know I just I see a news story about it and my teeth my jaw and my fists clench up because I'm yeah. so angry on their yeah. behalf just the idea of being confined yeah. for me just is is the worst the mm-hmm. worst thing that could ever happen mm-hmm. so I see somebody who was t- against their own will and yeah. wrongly accused 
and imprisoned and just 10 years go by and I just I think if that were me I would spend the entire 10 years plotting the murder of every single person <laughs> who put me there how do you how do do they ever talk about how they come to this place of of peace and acceptance well I think they they I don't know if they see it like that I don't think they're in a they're you know they're Buddha or anything, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think they're they're dealing with 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 their feelings and and the stuff that happened to them. Well, what, what was one of the fascinating things to me was um, their description of uh, PTSD, because a lot of them suffer from that, but it's a different type of PTSD because uh, you know somebody goes to war and they they witness or they're part of some terrible thing that happened and a thing replays in their head, but they said. Uh, death row PTSD is different because it's not that something happens once or twice it's that it happens every day because what happens you'll you'll wake up in the morning or you'll have a daydream and you'll come back and the reality is is that someone's going to kill you you're going to die and that constant every that day knowledge. reminder that no matter what you think what you feel how much you enjoy yourself in a moment finally it's going to come back to that thing so it's this repeated uh, trauma that cloud. impacts people in different ways. Yeah. yeah, man. It just makes me so angry. Even just yeah. we're br we're brushing against the topic, mm. and I'm furious on their behalves. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things. It's it's like it feels as if listen, you either devote your entire life's energy towards making sure this never happens, but even if you do, you know you can't really make a dent without being a brilliant legal scholar of some kind or mm -hmm. having tons of money to fund that. I mean, I, I always feel like I stop myself short at, I, I, I think myself out of, out of maybe doing the right thing sometimes. Do you like, do you ever do that? Cause it seems like you, well, you uh, were, let, let me say on their behalf yeah. that, um, uh, a lot of them end up knowing a lot about the law. Um, uh, but in a way, uh, for them, getting their stories out there, in, in their, in their own words, is is a way for them to fight uh, the death penalty, mm. to let people know that this is, this is what I went through, this is how it affected me, this is how it still affects me, this is how inhumane this sentence is. So, in in a way, they part of their life is dedicated to not letting this happen to other people, uh, and a witness to innocence in particular. Um, which is a great community of these exonerees. I think only which have numbered 155 oh, so wow. far. Um, so, what they're um, when they're working with the the project, are they writing essays about their experience or like they can write in any format uh -huh. they want? Yeah, we, we encourage them to just write, just write, just write, just write, just write, just write, just write. <laughs> and then where yeah, like is, is that stuff available where you website. can read it? Uh, I would I would go to Witness to Innocence uh, website. Um, I've been working with them through the Writers Guild of America, the Writers mm -hmm. Guild Initiative. So it's it's a, a bunch of people who are are writers, really, um, not just talented writers, but really good teachers and mm. people who are interested in you know the experiences of these of these exonerees. How do you you know? Obviously, you're a writer, but you're also a stand-up comic. I mean, do you ever? Do you find this part of your life and this world too much to translate fully on stage in like, you know, a chunk? Or is this like you'd need to do two, three one-hour sets just to scratch it? Oh, man. Some of the stuff, you know, 
I don't even know how to write about it yet. Some of it I know how to write about, like in a funny way. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> yeah. it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's not funny. Uh, <laughs> it's fucking bleak. Uh, yeah, it's very bleak. Um, bleak but so, good. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, what you're doing is, that that is great stuff. And you're giving these people a sliver of hope or connection. Oh, they're giving me. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's, it's it's really an exchange. I mean, just just to know that, just to, to be in the presence of someone who's endured something that no, none of us can imagine. I mean, talk about a, a, a nightmare that I have. I've had a couple of times in my life, which is being in prison. Mm-hmm. I've actually yeah. had that nightmare, and how scary that felt. And to have that be your reality for a decade or two decades, yeah. or a yeah. number of decades, plus a death sentence on top of that for something you did not do. Oh my God! And then to come out of that and to still reengage as a constructive member of society and just just to come out of that i mean because you're not guaranteed shit you know you read about these uh people who okay they want to suit against the city or they want to suit against the state that that's rare that's not the commonplace thing um i won't mention his name but there was this one guy and um Ron, talking about you. You know I'm talking about you. <laughs> Love you, man. You're the best. But he literally talks about, you know, when he got out, he was sleeping under the freeway. He couldn't get a job because everybody in his town knew his name. Uh, and it's they knew his name not because he got exonerated, yeah. but because he was convicted. And that doesn't go away. And he had to rebuild his life. And uh, fortunately, he had the energy and and developed a, a skill set to be able to do that. And, and he, he became a very successful person. He said at one point he, he, he had a business that employed 81 people. What? Wow. So he, I mean, but again, this is an extraordinary yeah. story, yeah. an extraordinary story. It feels like the uh, either the state or the federal government, it, when one of these people is exonerated, there should have to be, they should have to buy a nationwide ad campaign that runs at every level saying Ron didn't do anything yeah. it was our fucking fault give him yeah. a job like so, something, yeah, something like to that. admit that or you erase know, the conviction or yeah. some, or some, or a certain amount of money per day yeah you know what I mean yeah, per like should, yeah what do you expect yeah. when you like m- most employers are allowed to ask have you been convicted of a felony and if so <coughs> that's the end of your job interview like yeah. you're not gonna meet with anybody I mean yeah. how how are they expected to earn a living and not immediately have to commit a crime in order to, like, just to yeah. steal some fucking bread like well, Jean well, Valjean, well, well, you know? These, these guys are not going to commit a crime. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think they're, they, I mean, I, mean, I don't think that they're, they're they just don't want nothing to do with any any of that shit. Yeah. Nothing. Um, I wanted to ask you uh, a little bit about, um, you know, both on stage and in life, on social media, you talk a lot about race. Mm-hmm. Um. And you grew up in Massachusetts. Uh, yeah, man. <laughs> yeah, dude. That's why I talk a little bit about race. <laughs> well, I was curious. Yeah, People like what always was... talk to me about race. <laughs> Singular words. <laughs> Wasn't a long conversation, <laughs> but it was very poignant. It's about the marathon. About <laughs> the marathon. <laughs> but what was your childhood like? Like, did you experience a lot of you know direct or indirect racism? And yeah. Great. Next question. It was really constant and daily. So I guess I'm maybe I have PTSD. How about that? (laughs) It was constant and daily. But uh, I remember at one point we moved into a neighborhood that was predominantly white, and or and I went to so I had to change schools, and uh, you know I was uh, how old was I? So probably let me see, 
second, like third, second, third grade. So, you know, I started having all these friends who were white, and they would invite me over to their their homes to play. Because you remember that people used to invite you to yeah. play. Let's come yeah. over and play. Let's, you know, wasn't that great? Let's come play. Yeah. Yeah. thing. They'll play in the backyard. You have a stick and you hit it against something. This is yeah. great. Yeah, let's man. break some stuff. Oh man. Yeah. Climb a fence. Yeah, know. climbing fences. Oh, oh. Yeah. that used to be the best. We used to play uh, <laughs> like pretending to be stuntmen. Like you'd see some stuntman show <laughs> right. on TV, and then right. you'd go try to recreate it in the backyard That's with adorable. the like, yeah. That's really specific. It was mostly the Morgan boys next door getting uh, themselves hurt all the time. The Morgan boys. <laughs> the Morgan boys. Or just gathering a bunch of leaves and just falling in them. Yeah. <laughs> falling the so leaf. Innocent little Charles Schultz. Yeah, like, yeah man. But how was uh, how? But like, what would happen is I'd, I'd go and we'd be playing for a few minutes, and then um, some mother would yell out to him, John, John, come up here. And John would go upstairs and he'd come back downstairs and he'd be like, You have to go. What? <laughs> and after a couple Jeez. of times, you're like, I know why I had to go. <laughs> oh, so <laughs> I weird. see why I had to go. <laughs> Such a strange pattern here. Yeah. <laughs> oh, good God. I mean, like, I'm from Alabama and. I, whenever I hear stories about you know, something like that in the north, I'm like, mm. "What? I yeah. I didn't know you guys did that up here." Yeah, man. <laughs> That's some Alabama shit. Yeah, man. My my mom told me, um, you know, like I I didn't really, you know, my dad's from El Salvador, right? Mm-hmm. You know that. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't really understand, but I I'm I'm like this frat boy looking guy. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't really understand racism for a long time uh, until maybe I was like. Nine or ten was like the first time it really like became apparent, and it was because the Celtics, uh, because my mom had to explain there was a story about Robert Parrish, the chief, the guy I have the pen. Oh up. yeah, mm-hmm. um, he was like one of the best players in basketball forever, um, but he was one of the big five. It's a big deal, Celtics fan. And uh, there was a story about these guys outside the old garden, fucking just towny pieces of shit, yelling the n word at him. Mm. And then, you know, the story was about how you'd see those guys doing that. And then you'd, like, they'd cover them inside and they're just cheering them. Like, they're cheering the team. Yeah, man. It's this bizarre cognitive dissonance. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, is that, like, did you find there were different areas uh, in life where it was like, hey, we love having Jeffrey and then. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was it was directly that. Like, I remember when I, we moved into this this Irish neighborhood, I mean, they would. And I was, you know, too young to have any defenses against this, but I, I definitely experienced it where they'd be like, oh, we're not going down there. It's too many fucking niggas. And then they'd be like, not you. You're cool. No offense. <laughs> so you just feel like this, okay, what? So do I have friends? Do I not have friends? What is yeah. this? You know. What's this exemption yeah, I'm being exactly. given? Am I supposed to be grateful? Yeah. Thank you? Yeah, so, so much there was always that shit. What was it like with the the uh, police when you were a kid? Like I, you know, obviously white girl in Alabama grew up thinking of police as protectors. Um, was that a different experience for you? I mean, I mean, obviously we we've heard more about this in the last few years. Um, but I'm just curious if your childhood was like that. You become aware of them at a certain age. Mm-hmm. Like uh, you, once you become a certain size, and it's like really like maybe eight or nine. Um, I remember one time I was walking down the street, I think it was Blue Hill Avenue, and some new, they had new police cars. Like the the cars had gotten like really sleek looking Mm -hmm. and they had interesting 
uh, kind of sirens on top, you know, it's like, wow. And I was just looking at it because I was fucking fascinated. Like, wow, it's a new police car. And the cop literally got out of his car. He's like, what the fuck are you looking at? Jesus <laughs> I was like, oh, boy. Okay. <laughs> okay, all right. I am that old. <laughs> yeah, I'm that, I'm that guy. Oh. Well. And then, then being stopped, I remember one time I was with uh, my cousin who's older than me, and he could he could drive. So it was like 17 or whatever, how old, 16 Yeah, it's like 16 and a half to get your driver's license or your uh, yeah. permit or something. Yeah, so he could drive. And um, maybe I was, you know, 11, 12. And so we were driving somewhere, and the police stopped us. And I remember it was in a black neighborhood, and they stopped us. And we had to get out of the car. And then it was really embarrassing because everybody in the neighborhood just came out and they like watch what was happening. And it's only now as an adult that I realized that they came out to protect us. Really? They came out to be witnesses, not to embarrass us. Uh-huh. Just to be like, oh, There's we're watching you, the police, yeah. to see how you deal with these kids. Mm-hmm. And I'm crying now as I say that because I'm thankful to them. It's fucking insane, man. Yeah. It's fucking ludicrous. Yeah. I mean, you just, it's almost, I mean, it, I guess it's lucky that it happened in that neighborhood because you hear stories about people getting, especially the stadies, you know, if you're on a highway in the middle of nowhere, right. you know, I've, I've heard a couple of stories about just, hey, I came back and now I've been punched or my jaw's broken yeah. and nobody's going to believe me. Right. Uh, and that's like from, you know, just white guys. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I can't, you know, and this is Massachusetts, by the way, this is Massachusetts, not like 19... 19- 50. Yeah, it's, I don't know, it's hard to fucking process. Yeah. Hey, homie, I was just in L.A. Uh, what was it? Uh, last month. Here's my life. One minute, I'm, I'm, I'm literally riding in a private jet. Because this is show business. Okay. So awesome. some, some shit happened. And congratulations. Right? Next minute, <laughs> I'm dealing with the LAPD. Because I decide, um, I'm at a meeting, and we're downtown. And uh, it was me and Dwayne Kennedy, a comedian, mm-hmm, very funny yeah. dude. And I'm like, oh, well, let's take the subway. I never took the subway in L.A. So he's like, yeah, let's take the subway. <laughs> so we get out, we get in the subway, and immediately two police officers come up and demand to see our, our, our tickets. And Like demanding your papers? Yes, exactly. Like, well, let me see, see, see your tickets, your tickets. Yeah. So we're like, um, I'm like, I give it to him. I said, and, I, and I tell him as I give it to him, um, I, you know, I've never been on the subway before. I have no idea how it operates, but mm-hmm. here's my ticket. So he takes, he says, you're good. And then he's about to move on to the next person. I'm like, excuse me, but what if this ticket wasn't valid? What would happen? And he just turns and his expression is like half a snarl. Like, how fucking dare you ask me a fucking question? And he says, well, it's a $1,000 fine or seven days in jail for like a $2 fucking infraction. Wow. And uh, this is just the way to put motherfuckers in jail. Yeah. Take their fucking money for $2. And then, uh, you know, Dwayne and I look around and like, ah, look, there's no homeless looking people on the subway. There's no poor looking people on the subway. This keeps, this keeps people off the fucking trains and that's what the whole intent of that is. Yeah. It's horrible. Fucking horrible. I lived there for five years. I never rode the subway. I mean, it's just, it never even occurs to you after a while. Like even I know friends who didn't have cars after mm-hmm. a while, and they're like, "Nope, yeah. bum rides, take the bus, fuck the subway." Well, that's our privilege is that we we didn't either, but it was like a lark. Like, let's take the subway. Yeah. <laughs> let's see how this is for people. Oh, it's adorable. <laughs> a train underground, you say? So, yeah, yeah the, um, 
that's just kind of blowing my mind a little bit because I I've, California obviously I right? like everyone should I've seen uh, Ava DuVernay's documentary Thirteenth yeah. and yeah just the idea that there are all these fucking little rules that oh we're not going to enforce that with white people but you know if we can get more black people in prison for nothing let's just do it oh and, and Mexicans too man yeah. they want to put like in, in L A they got this thing and. I peeped this game right away, like on a, on a ma- like some major street, like Wilshire Boulevard. Mm. Uh, the uh, and I, I'm not I'm not saying Wilshire in particular, but the speed limit will be low, like it'll be 30 miles yeah. an hour, right? Yeah. But nobody drives 30 miles. No. An hour. <laughs> nobody. Yeah. But now they can pull over anybody they want because nobody's driving 30 miles an hour, and it's just. And, and that street in particular was just Mexican after Mexican after Mexican. Let's pull them over. Let's see if we can get somebody who's not only speeding but might be illegal, or not, not only speeding but might mm-hmm. have some kind of warrant, yeah. you know. And just you just see how selective enforcement of the law works. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, that is a conveniently divided, I mean, East Hollywood to West you know, Will, mm-hmm. East Wilshire to West Wilshire. I mean, mm-hmm. the western part of Wilshire is like that's where I wrote at the Lampoon. That's where uh, UCLA is. You mm-hmm. know, that's on your way mm-hmm. to the beach. East, you know, that's uh, you get like uh, some industrial buildings and you know uh, cheaper neighborhoods. But it's it's a it's not like on a line, but it might as well be. Mm-hmm. It is on a line. And somebody explained it to me once, which was uh, really fascinating. It was uh, I had a barber in LA, and uh, he's like, it wasn't South Central I used to go to, but some, it was definitely somewhere south of Wilshire Boulevard. And uh, I got in an argument with him about something silly. And he, instead of uh, getting really mad at me over this thing I was arguing about, he just explained some shit to me about L.A. and about his life. And one thing he told me that was fascinating, which was before the Watts riots, I guess, which were in the 60s, he said that a black person couldn't go north of Wilshire Boulevard unless they were in a service uniform. Jesus it's like that was the dividing line. You could go to Wilshire to, and that's where all yeah. the big department stores used to be at one time. Mm-hmm. So you could go there and you could shop and everything, but you couldn't go north of there. Mm. I mean, that's what is it? Is it Highland that goes right up, uh, intersects with uh, Wilshire? There's like a there's Highland a, intersects with Wilshire. Yeah, know? yeah. There's mm-hmm. they've got like a lot of like big lovely house. like a lot of times when you see that's oh, yeah. that's a street you see in a lot of movies like yeah, when yeah. a car is driving down there's palm trees on both sides and these lovely little houses you know super yeah there's Hancock Park and, and Larchmont and yeah those are, that's that's old school really uh, yeah we're wealth yeah you can see that yeah divide. So I remember um as a kid uh, in the schools that I went to I don't know what the actual percentage is they weren't 50 50 white and black but it, it was mm-hmm fairly balanced it's probably a little bit more heavily white but uh i didn't really have a good grasp on racism and what was happening yet um because it felt like a lot of different people were at my school but i did start at a certain point noticing that you know the the lunchroom was Mm self-segregating and you know it it one day did occur to me that no black people lived in my neighborhood Mm -hmm. even though we would occasionally have black friends over and then people would look out the windows and and be you know weird about it and then one day driving down the street i think i was taking this was must have been in high school i was taking my friend home after basketball practice and she lived literally across the tracks Mm -hmm. and that and i like as we were driving to her house i saw so many kids that i went to school with Mm. and realized oh this is what my town is. This mm. is like they have kept Framingham black people is living divided, over here. Uh, by, literally by train tracks as well. I grew up on the uh, south side, mm. which was the uh, where if you were like Hispanic or black, that's where you p- 
probably lived. Mm. And the north side is a little more affluent. It's not it's not quite like it's not quite exactly that, but I lived uh, on the south side till I was about 11 and uh, my mom and I lived in a, uh, a two bedroom on uh, Alexander Street. And above us, there was this family, the Castros. And uh, I know my mom, my mom speaks fluent Spanish because, you know, she went to Guatemala where she met my dad. Um, And she would talk to the Castros once in a while, but they didn't, they weren't really interested in talking to her. She was really hungry. So she probably put them off because she was (laughs) hungry to use her Spanish. Right, right, right. Uh, Because my. That white lady with her Spanish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Because, like, all my Spanish relatives had moved to Virginia by then. So Mm -hmm. they. uh, you know, she didn't really have anybody to talk to after a while, but uh, in Spanish. But um, you know, they lived right above us, and mm. we never. You know, I saw Melvin. There was this kid, Melvin Castro, who's in my grade, and I saw him at school every day. We lived in the same like three floor, like three apartment, three floor uh, divided house, mm-hmm. and we never a triple played deca. Together. Yeah, triple deca. <laughs> <laughs> and we never ever played together. Not because there was any animosity, it was just like I don't think it ever occurred to either of us mm. to do so mm. because you just didn't. Yeah. And that's how Yeah. That's the story of America everybody. Yeah, the race problem in America is is so all-encompassing that for the most part it goes unnoticed. Um it's so endemic. It's so it's endemic. Part of the fabric and people from other countries if you talk to like uh, you know, especially people from the UK or people, uh, oh UK racist. Y- year, years once, ago, once you, once you get out of London, it's like okay, let me yeah. get back to London. Oh sure, sure, <laughs> yeah, the country. But it's yeah. but they are there. They have. I've heard plenty of English people say you Americans are obsessed with race, mm. and I always find that a little bit of a you know, a, a, not a privilege statement, but kind of a, an obtuse observation because uh, you know it's. If you look at the history of the country, how could we not, as a country, be focused on this? If you're even paying attention, because yeah. most people aren't. They're not yeah. even. Oh, oh yeah, most, they deny it's a oh, problem. Deep, big denial about it here. Yeah, huge. It's crazy. Well, and it, that's a, both liberals and conservative, white liberals and conservatives. Uh, there's so many of them who just don't even want to hear it. It's like we ignore it. Doesn't affect me, uh, especially with white liberals. I'm one of the good ones. Why are you mm. mad at me? Yeah. And it's just, you have to talk about it more. And more importantly, especially with white people, you have to listen more to the experiences of other people. And you, you know it's fascinating because you're kind of putting your finger on it. You know, they did this study uh, and they about uh, race in America and racism. And the question, initial question is, does racism exist? Mm. And half the respondents said no. What? And the other half said yes. <laughs> right? Then they did... A second question, which is that, okay, if racism exists, so now we're dealing with half the people, what, if anything, can we do about it? Or should be done about it? Or should be done to redress it, more specifically? And the place where where they both agreed, both these groups of people, is that nothing. So the people who, who don't believe that there's racism, of course, don't think anything should be done about it because mm-hmm. it doesn't exist. But the people who, who believe that there is such a thing as racism. They were like, well, eh, what could be it? Uh, maybe. <laughs> so, that's our country. So that's that's a that's like ni- that's when you add it up, it's like ninety something percent of the country is like, ah, fuck it. Um, I'm 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 Canadian and American, but I grew up in a, in the U.S. Yeah. And when I go to Canada, I don't experience racism like I experience here in the yeah. United States. You've been talking about that in your right. sets, but Canadians of color do. 
It's just that because for me, there are so many daily microaggressions and macroaggressions in the United States. And literally, when I go to Canada, maybe 75, 80% of that is gone. And I feel like it's fucking <laughs> paradise. <laughs> it's fucking paradise. But for the people who live there, they still feel that other 30% or 20% or yeah. you know 50% of what I, what I feel. And they don't like it. And they have a right not to like it. Mm-hmm. And for a while, I kind of dismissed him like, dude, you have, you <laughs> have on, no 20%? fucking idea how good this fucking feels. <laughs> but for them, it's a hardship. And so in a way, I start to understand yeah. that, you know, this kind of uh, this comparative criticism. 20% yes. is too much. You know, yeah, Way too much. Yeah. yeah. It's, that's, it's ludicrous to have to do that compare. It's yeah. Absolutely ludicrous that but you the, could have that to, to have to to be allowed the opportunity to have that perspective is right. wrong in the first place. Yeah. But I'm glad yeah. you got that. <laughs> but it's, you're right. It's because the attitude is: look, it's not 1965 exactly. anymore. It's not it's that bad. Better. Yeah. It's not slavery it's anymore. Better. It yeah. could it could be worse. Exactly. Yeah. What would you want? Yeah. Better or worse? But, we live in an either or paradigm. <laughs> exactly. But you know, we, I always tell white people: listen, they don't like it. <laughs> is that white people have been dismissing racism from slavery on? For white for white people, there's never been racism. Yeah, so, slavery and, ended. <laughs> hey, everything's right. equal. Exactly. Yeah. So you know, I like that you said that. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <What>? <laughs> well, you said he says this to white people and they don't like it. Oh, and oh, I like oh, it. Right. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> so that, no, you know, I do like that. But I use that to discredit some of their current observations about how there's no racism like you, you this is a history yeah. this is a pattern that's been happening for 400 years mm-hmm. so just take take that take take what you're thinking with a grain of salt it's just so cra- it's fucking crazy yeah. it's like having to point out the sun produces warmth like it's well it's, that, that's coming up <laughs> it's coming up with trump <laughs> how do we know how do we know the heat is coming from the sun yeah. is there any is there the data's not in um, so I think uh, moral yeah. of the show is white people shut up and listen. Um, and uh, the federal government needs to seriously pay people back who they've wrongly incarcerated. And if you're in prison, don't give up hope. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. Um, so why don't we close out with our uh, secular prayer? Jeffrey, thank you so much for being here yeah, and for the – for. Being a wonderful comedian, a wonderful yeah. person, and d- the amazing work that you're doing. Oh, thank you so much. And, uh, All right, you kick it off. Mm-hmm. Our fellow humans who art here and now. Hallowed be thy consciousness. Thy kingdom floats. In a universe so vast, it's like totally bananas, man. Therefore, be kind to each other. And don't eat so much bread. Ask forgiveness of your trespasses. And forgive those who trespass against you. Because all of us can be really fucking annoying. For thou art the mind inside thine stupid human suit. The only one of its kind. We are thus also. And that must simply be enough. Amen. Good work, everybody. We solved all the world's problems. No, Except, wait, some people said what? amen and some people said amen. What the fuck was I said amen that? this time because I said the, amen last man, time. Man, some racial shit. <laughs> I know. It's my fault. I always go amen. Is it supposed to be I amen? said amen this time because you wanted me to say, <laughs> I said amen. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to cavecomedyradio.com.